Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood, sports, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, winter is coming. It's raining. It's getting cold. We went from that perfect fall, like 70, high 60s, and then suddenly it's just 50 and raining. What is it, man? I think we talked about this last week. Spring is beautiful, but it's like 10 days long. (laughs) Fall is... Three days long. Yeah, seriously. I mean, Jessica left for LA 11 days ago, and she's going to come back, and she's going to have missed all of like the nice part of fall, and it's uh, whatever. I mean, I guess it could be a lot worse. Yeah, it's very weird. It's like fall in New York is amazing, but it's only a week long, and then it's just raining and cold and as you said to me earlier it only gets worse from here so hopefully we get a couple like little sprints here of nice weather you can see the well that's the thing when it becomes march today days like this you'll be like thrilled you're like (laughs) oh my god it's 50 today yeah 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 that's true true. there's some interesting stuff happening i mean we'll get to this later about a slow movie month in september but That said, usually when there's no superhero movies, things slow down. And we just got an announcement recently. Hugh Jackman reprising his role as Wolverine in the third installment of Deadpool. The film comes out two years from now, but Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds did like a Twitter. It was a funny little Twitter video that they did. They've been teasing this for years. It's kind of cool to see. It's fun. But then when I saw the release date, I was like, Okay, this is September 2024. I'm like, why are you even telling me this now? You know what Comic-Con is, right? We did an episode on that. And Disney has their own sort of solely Disney fan event called D23. And it's where it's sort of like a Comic-Con, but it's just Disney IP. Right. And it's similar in that they're supposed to tease a lot of upcoming projects and they have panels and things like that. And so Ryan Reynolds was not able to make it for D23. So they made that little video and he was like, hey fans, sorry, we couldn't be there. We're working super hard on Deadpool. And I think Ryan Reynolds is really funny. Yeah, he's funny. He was like very deadpan, like, hey, there's nothing 
I don't mean we've been working really hard, but we don't have anything really to show you. And then Hugh Jackman just like walks by and he's like, hey, do you want to do this movie? And Hugh Jackman says, uh, sure, Ryan. Well, it's funny because Ryan's been teasing this. You know, they're, they're constantly trolling the Internet, the two of them together, taking photos together. Deadpool trolls Wolverine and some of the teaser stuff that they do and end credit stuff. So it is cool because it's now the second because the first two Deadpool movies were produced by Fox. And this one will be a Marvel Studios produced Deadpool three that technically now has an MCU crossover Wolverine being a part of the MCU working with Kevin Feige. The only other X-Men character to do that from the Fox studio was Professor X, who showed up in Doctor Strange. So this is kind of a cool crossover event. Wolverine's been around since 2000, where he debuted as a character in the films. Hugh Jackman playing the role. Kevin Feige and Hugh Jackman haven't worked since the first X-Men movie, and now they're all working together on this one. It'll make your head spin. So we actually (laughs) talked about this in episode 12, how X-Men is a Marvel property, but the film rights were licensed to Fox on a perpetual basis back in the late 90s. And as a result, Fox Studios controlled the X-Men film rights. Marvel controlled the comic rights. The TV rights were sort of frozen. Then fast forward to 2019, as we talked about, Disney and Bob Iger sort of brought the X-Men back. He bought he did a $70 billion deal with Rupert Murdoch to buy a majority of Fox assets and bring them under the Disney umbrella so that Disney owned Fox Studios. Basically everything except for the broadcast stations, Fox News, Fox Business, FS1, and Big Ten Network. So everything else is now owned by Disney, which one of the side benefits of that is that the X-Men are now in Kevin Feige's toolbox. So as fans are super excited about this because Kevin's a great filmmaker and creative head and there's so much potential with the X-Men being in the MCU and you know Wolverine I can't think of anyone playing him other than Hugh Jackman honestly like Hugh Jackman owns that role 17 years like you said nine pictures the other thing about this is in X-Men Origins Wolverine oh yeah Deadpool was in it but he was kind of ruined because he his mouth was sewn shut and like he had it was a terrible swords for arms yeah but they they kind of like. I didn't hate the movie. I was an intern at Marvel at the time in law school, and we got to go to some like employee screening, and everyone was so critical, like leaving. But I liked it. I was like, you know what? Look, the Wolverine on its own haven't been great movies. I liked Logan. I thought Logan was great, but Logan took the whole let's base this off of one of like the graphic novels or one of the comic book series, the storyline within that. Let's also make it R-rated. Deadpool had success with that. That worked out well. And, I mean, spoiler alert, Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is killed off in the end of that movie, but that does take place way into the future. So they're saying that this Deadpool 3 installment is before that all happens. But like I said, they break rules sometimes. Sometimes they just ignore things that they do. I'm excited about this. That's part of the fun, right? Like, that's why you need to have creative writers because they didn't control Wolverine X-Men Origins Wolverine, The Wolverine, or Logan. Those weren't Marvel movies. So Kevin's got to sort of like find a way to fit it all in, be truthful to what he can be, honor the comics, and make it make sense, but also have it be fun. If there's things that don't work, then they don't work. And so he's not like beholden to the Fox story arc, but you kind of have to like do the best you can. So Kevin Feige is going to be executive producing it. You've got Sean Levy, who's directing it. 
I was looking through his IMDb and I'm like, hmm. Has he done some cool stuff? He did Free Guy, which I wasn't the biggest fan of. He's done over ten episodes. I like Free Guy. You like Free Guy? Okay. I mean, it was it was yeah. it was okay. He's done ten episodes of Stranger Things, including some out of uh, season four, which was incredibly done. He also did Real Steel with Hugh Jackman, so he's worked with both of these actors. I actually thought Real Steel was funny. He did Date Night, Night at the Museum. So you know, he, he's done some stuff. He's got so. he's got some chops. He's got some chops, and um. Let's see how this pans out. And the writers are from the first two installments of Deadpool 1 and 2. And I think people have just genuinely liked the, the movies. They've done well. It's, it's exciting. Well, I guess we'll talk about it in two years when it comes out. But exciting announcement. Exciting announcement. And the teaser was cool, right? It so, was fun. It was you know, fun. You know, it's like leave it to uh, Marvel to keep us eagerly waiting. I did want to correct one thing from last week, just real quick. I said that. My professor, Brian Stevenson, uh, was played by Jamie Foxx in the movie Mercy last week. Actually, I was wrong on two counts, and Jess corrected me on this. The movie was called Just Mercy, and my professor was played by Michael B. Jordan. Jamie Foxx played the wrongly convicted inmate, Walter McMillan. So just wanted to correct that for you guys. If you're played by Jamie Foxx or Michael B. Jordan, either one, that's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Neither is like a bad person to play you in a movie, but I I think you got to probably give it to Michael B. Jordan in that one. Yeah. It's a close call. I would say Michael B. Jordan now, Jamie Foxx, if it was like around the time Ray had come out. So, you know, it was a great movie. Sure. Yeah, it was 2019, so. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, let's take a break and let's get back and talk about some of the box office numbers. A bankruptcy update by Cineworld. Be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Okay, Paul. So movie business, domestic box office revenue for September 2022. Worst in the last 26 years, not including 2020, which was height of the pandemic or at least a you know peak pandemic pre-vaccine um, yes theaters yeah. weren't even open uh, numbers plummeted to 328.7 million honestly i was just looking for a movie to watch and september has just been a dead zone there wasn't really anything to watch i think that's kind of part of it like there are no big releases there weren't any tent poles there were no superhero or action movies those are normally what dominate box office obviously there was The Woman King, a Don't Worry Darling, Smile came out. I guess it opened on the 30th. But you're right. I mean, let's call it $330 million for a month is super low. September is usually, on the grand scheme of things, kind of a soft month because it's out of the summer, blockbuster season. It's before the end of year holiday push. And sometimes, you know, major movies come out at year end to capitalize on the holiday ticket sales. So September is usually sort of a down month, but this was exceptionally down. And I think there's probably two factors. One is we're coming out of the pandemic, but the pandemic had a lot of supply 
disruption and production disruption. So there was this backlog of films that came out late spring and summer, and there was like nothing for September. That's one thing. And then the other is box office just hasn't fully recovered from where it was pre-pandemic. And just to give you some numbers, I'm sure you know this too. 2019, the annual box office domestic was like $11.5 billion. Right now, I think we're at five and a half. Yeah. Three quarters of the way through the year in 2022. Last year was only four and a half. So if you think about it, like last year was almost 60% off 2019. And this year we have some films around the corner like Avatar 2 and Black Panther 2, which could do really well. Yeah. But there's probably no way we're going to get to anywhere near 2019 numbers. Yeah, and we think about that number is held basically by Top Gun. You know, we had a couple Marvel movies in there that we did okay. Top Gun Maverick, Jurassic World Dominion, Doctor Strange, yeah. Minions, and The Batman were the top five of this year. Those are big movies. They're big movies. I mean, Top Gun was one and a half billion, so great performance. But it's a soft year. Yeah. And the question is, is this a trend? Did the pandemic fundamentally change the theatrical model for good? Or are things going to get back to billion dollars a month that we were seeing before the pandemic? And I think that's a big question mark. I'm not sure. I know, Mesh, you love going to the theater more than anyone I know. Um, and so I assume that if there were... If there's movies. Blockbuster movies. Well, it's not even just blockbuster movies. Like, good movies that I want to see. And it's like... Don't worry, darling. I was like, okay, I would watch that in the theater. It came out, mixed reviews, and I'm like, mm. Like, my sister and I were going to go watch it when I was visiting uh, family in D.C. last weekend. And I'm like, yeah, maybe we see it. And it's like 56%. Uh, you know, that's that gets into territory where you're like, and I messaged a friend who saw it. She was basically like, silly movie, entertaining. I'm like, okay, does that get me to get up and go to the theater? And I'm also one of those people, like, during the week, if I need to, like, think or kind of get my mind off stuff. I go to the movies alone a lot and there's nothing to watch. There's just nothing to watch. And that's a bit disappointing. Bullet Train, I would have watched, but then again, the reviews were so like mixed and I still haven't watched it. I haven't even rented it. I probably like Bullet Train. I don't know about Don't Worry Darling. I want to see The Woman King, but even that, you know, made like 50 million. So it's probably a good movie. It's not going to compete with you know, a Marvel blockbuster. You know, I am hopeful, like, the more, like, of these these great directors with good scripts, like, an, you know, a Knives Out sequel is something I want to watch in the theater. But that's um, not even, it, is that even going to have a theatrical release? I bet they're going to do something similar to what they do with limited? The Irishman. Yeah, they're going to do, like, a limited release, like they did with um, Don't Look Up as well. Like, you could watch it in the theater, and then you could watch it on Netflix later. But, yeah, like, I just like watching movies in the theater, and I don't necessarily just want to watch, like, a, box office superhero movie. I just want to watch a good movie that is like, I know how people felt about Nope. It was pretty mixed. I enjoyed it. I thought it was like a ride, like a roller coaster. That was a movie you go watch in the theater. I think if you watch that movie at home, you're kind of like, uh, okay. But in the theater, you're getting like, you know, people are getting like, they're jumping. Their people are like commenting. Like, that's why I love the theater so much. Right. The theater is much more immersive, right? Yeah. It's more of an escape than watching something at home. And I think that that lends itself to special effects laden movies, but it doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, there are other movies that work in theatrical settings. It's just, you know, September wasn't a very 
compelling month for that. And we'll see. It's going to be tough for Black Panther 2, I think, to exceed Black Panther 1 without Chadwick. Yeah. And it's going to be tough for Avatar 2 to exceed Avatar 1 because Avatar 1 was just like almost $3 billion worldwide. Yeah, and, and towards the end of the year, we'll also be getting the releases of the you know, who are the Oscar contenders going to be? And I think that always pushes people to be like, I do want to watch this in the theater, hopefully. I mean, I love going to like more of the small cinemas in New York and like watching that stuff because you know they're going to be good movies. But yeah, I mean, and that brings us to that is very hard on the movie industry. And we talked about Cineworld a few weeks ago. Yeah, the theater business in particular, right? Yeah, it's like, that's tough, man. Yeah, so we talked about this in episode 31, Cineworld, which is the second largest operator of theaters in the world. They operate somewhere just under 800 theaters and maybe like 7,000 screens or something. They filed bankruptcy for their U.S. and U.K. operations. So bankruptcy, as we discussed in episode 31, they're chapter 11, so they're in a reorganization, restructuring. They're not selling off assets, but they are going to sort of get out of their bad leases and work out deals with their creditors and formulate a plan to sort of slim down and restore themselves to profitability. That plan, they said they're going to file that at the end of this month, October 31st. And we said at the time where they filed, they had over $5 billion in liabilities and only $4 million in cash. So that's like untenable when you have, you know, it's like a one to 1,000 ratio or less um, of liabilities to cash on hand. They're focused right now on just running as many profitable theaters as they can and making as much revenue as they can so that they can start to pay down some of this debt. Once the judge approves their plan, they'll have access to $2 billion in debtor in possession financing. As of now, I think they have access to $800 million of that, which they're using to operate and keep the lights on for now. They have closed 12 theaters in the U.S., some in L.A., some in SF, one in Philly, and North Carolina, they're, they're all over the country. But they have an optimistic view. And just for this year so far, they've made $1.5 billion in revenue in, in the U.S. And last year, they only had $300 million. That's an improvement. This year in six months, uh, six months ending June 30th, they've had $57 million in profit, whereas last year they lost $210 million in the corresponding time period. So they're rebounding. The question is, how long will it take for them to get to the point where they can sustain their business model? They're saying they don't anticipate recovery to pre-pandemic levels until 25 at the earliest. I think it's also as people get more comfortable with, I don't mind watching a movie in the theater. I'm kind of getting over watching at home and streaming. Like, I want to go out. I think part of that is the experience thing. I mean, you look at, you know, we have Nighthawk and Alamo Draft House in New York, which are full service you go sit down, you can order drinks, you can order food. And when there's a big movie, those things are the hardest ones to get tickets to because, you know, it is like a fun experience. I, for the longest time, didn't like going to that because it felt a little too away from, you know, the real movie going experience. But then it's also like, yeah, you want to go to dinner and a movie and you get to do it together. And those models seem to work. I think Alamo does pretty decent. They have a bar in there. They have a little restaurant in there. And it's a fun place to go. In my view, it's also how do you compete with people watching a movie at home on like a, you know, a 4K TV with a great sound system? It's like you create a more social atmosphere, more of an escape. You can take your family out. Sure, you could eat food at home and watch the movie, but it's not going to be the same as like 
dinner, drinks, and then a movie, that's a, like a four or five hour thing. Yeah, Whereas yeah. if you can do them at the same time, it's a little bit more efficient. Dude, you walk into an AMC or a Regal, like the food offerings haven't really changed in the last, I don't know, since I've been going to a movie In my as a lifetime. Kid. And I'm like, right. sometimes I'm like, no, I don't want to eat popcorn and have a, like, give me something. I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten dinner, but I'm kind of like watching my, uh, my intakes this week and I don't want a bunch of like sodium buttered popcorn and there's nothing else I can eat. And I'm kind of like, maybe you guys need to pick up what the snacks are. Like even update what you're offering here in terms of even the sweets and the drinks and stuff. And this is why I like AMC theaters because you have the machine you can pick all your other stuff because I don't drink caffeine, but I don't mind like a caffeine free Coke. But if I go to a Regal, they don't have that. They only have, you know, Diet Coke, Coke, or, or I think they might be Pepsi. And I think even those machines are like, okay, that's somewhat of an experience. I get to make myself, oh my God, I can have a diet Dr. Pepper caffeine-free cherry. I haven't had one of those since I was a child. Fine, I'll go to right. an AMC. Customize your non-caffeinated beverage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if there's a fan of theaters, it's mesh. Yeah, I love them. And you're betting on Cineworld. So the other thing that happened this week in the Cineworld sort of update is they had a deal pre-pandemic to buy Cineplex, which is a Canadian operator. They had a $3 billion merger agreement and Cineworld backed out of it. Obviously, they're losing tons of money and they just bought Regal and they were like, hey, we don't want to do this deal anymore. The market's changed, blah, blah, blah. And Cineplex is, I guess, suing to sort of either get a damages payment or try to enforce that deal. And the bankruptcy judge said, Hey guys, you're gonna to have to wait on this until we sort everything out with the bankruptcy. So I mean, it sucks for everyone. Can you imagine Cineplex being like, "Oh my God, thank God this merger's coming in because we're suffering too," and then Cineworld's like, "We can't do it." And I think just even as someone who you want to start a business or you run a business, you start a business like when your business is in trouble, I cannot imagine the stress. And it's a lot of it has to do with like market conditions. And obviously, if you're over leveraged and all those things, and you learn and you have the opportunity now to like clean up your balance sheet, but it's also like you're waiting, you're a derivative of an industry that's also oh suffering. Like there's not much you can really do besides, I guess in this case, clean everything up so that you're not like hemorrhaging money. Right, exactly. You find the pockets that are performing and you focus on growing them and the things that are underperforming or like may never perform, right? You know, you were maybe a little optimistic when you were running the numbers when the economy was strong and now you're looking at it through a different lens and you're like, this probably not going to be profitable. You know, these locations, maybe you have too many. You got to, you know, shut down the underperforming ones. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's what bankruptcy allows them to do. And you better pray to God that Kevin Feige has got some hits coming your way. Because I, I wouldn't doubt for a second that in those meetings, they're like, when, who's got the release date for the Marvel yeah, movies? Like, All right, we got Deadpool 3 in two years. <laughs> okay, guys, Deadpool up. 3, the new Batman movies coming out, all hands on deck. I mean, they have to be talking about, you know, they have to know the trends as well. So it makes sense. It does. So the theater business is changing, but maybe rebounding. We'll just have to wait and see on that one. Yeah. But another business that is growing super fast, we'll talk about after the break. All right, Mesh, are you a pickleball fan? You know, it's funny. I played pickleball. Again, I, I grew up in Pakistan. I went to an American school there. And during PE, we played pickleball. And I remember like no kind way. of enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. This is like back in like 
mid to late nineties. So I just you are way ahead of the curve playing pickleball, <laughs> but then I haven't heard about the thing for like decades. And then pandemic comes around, everyone's playing pickleball, and it's made me be like. Okay, I kind of want to go play this. I have friends who play it. It's all over TikTok. And if you watch some of those exchanges on TikTok, it's incredible. I mean, one of the fastest growing sports. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening here. According to the founder of Major League Pickleball, Steve Kuhn, pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the U.S. They have roughly 5 million players now, and their goal is to be at 40 million by 2030. It's a combination of tennis, badminton, and ping pong. But it's sort of like a happy medium of all the things. It's not as physically demanding as tennis. It's a little bit more social because you're closer to everyone. Uh, you can sort of play it at all ages, whereas like it's kind of hard to play tennis when you're right, like right. older. Um, but the majority, going into the pandemic, the majority of people who played pickleball on a regular basis were over 65. And now it's growing in the... 20-year-old range. Yeah, and like they were selling out of nets and stuff. I know there's a couple courts in, in New York, and I mean, we should go play. I, I'd love to play. I don't think you need as much skill. Yeah, apparently you can like pick it up pretty quickly, and, you know, they must have. The courts, ha they don't have to be that big, so there must be a place. But actually, I imagine that you could repurpose a lot of things and play pickleball on them. Yeah, I know they have pickleball courts in New York, so we should check that out. I mean, the interesting thing is I didn't actually know there was a whole major league. I thought it was more of a people were playing. Well, it, it. was founded last year, so it's not like <laughs> you were it's not like you're missing. So pickleball was founded in the 60s. Basically, Joel Pritchard and Bill Bell were on vacation looking for a way to entertain themselves and their kids, and they came up with this game which I think is pretty cool because I remember being a kid and, you know, we didn't have access to a basketball court or like whatever, a field. You had to somehow entertain yourselves if you wanted to be, you know, get some activity. Like I remember as kids, you know, you could throw a football around, like play in a parking lot or on a field or whatever. But I like how they were kind of creative and using what they had, which is they had a wiffle ball. They had ping pong paddles, which they've now replaced with slightly bigger paddles. Yep. And they had a badminton net, which they lowered. And they managed to create this game that's like pretty fun. And it's evolved a little, but, you know, it's like household ingredients or whatever you want to call it. And they've created this game and it's growing like wildfire. Anyway, you're right. Last year is when Major League Pickleball was founded and there were 12 teams. It's expanding to 16. Apparently, they're all in the seven-figure valuations now, which is, to me, a little bit crazy, but, you know, what do I know? And the reason we're talking about it is because LeBron James, Draymond Green, and Kevin Love, along with Maverick Carter and a handful of others, just formed a consortium to buy one of the expansion teams. And then I was reading more about it. Like, I didn't realize, you know, you have investor and, and marketing personality, Gary Vee, Drew Brees, the, the yeah. Bucks Co-owner, yeah. Mark Lazary, he also owns or is invested in this league. These are legit names. I'm telling you, man, go on TikTok and just Google pickleball. You see the professionals playing this. It's really fun to watch them because it's, it's a very quick, it's like slow, quick, slow, quick, and it's a fun game to watch. Yeah, no, exactly. And so sports is huge business. We talked about this in episode 28, how in 2008, when the India Premier League, the cricket league was founded. The teams had a valuation around like 70, 75 million dollars. Now they have billion dollar valuations 14 years later, which is, you know, a cumulative annual growth rate of 24%. So in India, 
if you owned a cricket team 15 years ago, you're a billionaire now. And NBA teams have been growing at 16% over the past decade, the team valuations. NFL teams have been growing at 10% over the past decade annually. So it's no secret that sports are big business and it's kind of like the billionaires club, right? And we talked about it and how the owner of Chelsea had to sell because of the Russian sanctions and Todd Bowley bought it for $5.3 billion. It was part of a consortium. So sports are big business and people throw around huge amounts of dollars to own the teams because the revenue streams when you add in the TV and the ticket sales and the merchandise are so large. Now, the thing with pickleball is you're trying to get in before it becomes huge, right? Yeah. And that's, that's really what this is. So it's a little bit riskier. But if you think back to the UFC, who are Fertitta's, bought for $2 million in 2001. Then they sold it to WME for $4 billion in 2016. Now it's probably worth $10 billion. So, I yeah. mean, it's really like exponential growth for UFC. And that's what people are trying to cash in on. I don't know. I mean, you tell me you think pickleball is fun to watch. I don't know if it's going to command a TV audience. Right now, it's players play for prizes. There's like next year, there's going to be $2 million in prize money. And the championships for this season are coming up in two weeks. And the, the total purse is like 320000 And the winner is going to get hundred grand. So, I mean, it's humble beginnings, but who knows? I mean, I, even if you're LeBron, right? Like, just owning something when you're that big of a star, he's going to be able to impact the value just by showing up to games and posting about it and maybe even playing. It, it's like, you know, badminton's a major sport. Squash is a big sport. I mean, they're not like tennis big. They're not really lucrative. Yeah, exactly. And I think that with pickleball, I think maybe because of the ability it has with like a younger audience and TikTok and social media and like videos like that, it's a little unclear to me. I will be paying more attention now, but you know, people are always looking for ways to make money in sports. I work with clients that own sports teams. And when you own a team, you know, part of what you have to do is invest in the future. And you know, is it if you're already a billionaire, what's the harm in throwing, you know, a million dollars into this new league? Worst case scenario, you lose it, I guess, obviously, which would hurt. But best case scenario, maybe you have another billion dollar franchise in your hands. Right. So, yeah, these are very risky investments. And, we, you know, we tell that to our clients all the time, but it could be fun. And getting on the ground floor involves risk. Let's see what happens. But I mean, it does bring us to, you know, the other thing that we wanted to talk about today was money. Now going to students who are playing established sports within college, NIL, which, you know, it's so funny when, uh, is it NIL? You say nil, uh, NIL, but I looked it up. At first, I felt like an idiot because I was like, what does this stand for? And I, when I, when I Googled it, I felt really dumb because Name, it was like, it's almost like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, so that's should have better that called Paul on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so this is an area that I've been focusing on a ton over the past two, three years because I am a sports fan and the landscape has changed dramatically, changed actually last summer, July 2021. But for the longest time, maybe 100 years, the NCAA's position was that athletes had to be amateurs and therefore they couldn't earn compensation um, because that would jeopardize their amateur status. And so they would penalize any athlete that earn money, essentially, other than a scholarship and a stipend for sort of books and meals uh, by taking away their eligibility to play sports. And so there was a ton of backlash to this position. 
and conferences and and schools were making billions of dollars off of yeah. football, basketball rights uh, for student athletes, and the student athletes weren't getting anything other than their scholarships. And some of them, especially in the case of football, were risking significant injuries every week, and only a tiny percentage of them actually make it to the pros. So it just seemed inequitable. And various states, starting with California, were starting to pass laws that said, hey, you know, any rule, any law that penalizes a student athlete for earning money from the licensing of their name, image, and likeness is, is not going to be enforceable in this state. And sort of, so there was like a critical mass of states basically making laws that were contrary to the NCAA's position. And then also in 2021, the Supreme Court decided a case, the Alston case, 9-0 actually, this is a unanimous decision, basically saying that the NCAA was on thin ice by saying that, you know, upholding its amateurism rules justified it prohibiting student athletes from earning compensation. The Supreme Court was basically like, we're not necessarily overruling that, but we're saying it's highly questionable and we don't think it would really be enforceable under an antitrust analysis. So right after that decision, the NCAA changed their position in July of 2021 and they said, hey, you know what? Student athletes, you guys can earn money based on the use of your name, image, and likeness. You can do deals. You have to sort of be in compliance with whatever state law applies in the state you're in. You have to be transparent with your universities. You can hire an agent or a lawyer to help represent you in these. And the only rule was that universities couldn't pay for play. So you couldn't literally write someone a right. check to right. have them play on your football or basketball or baseball team. But that was the only rule. And so now we're 15 months into this new paradigm. And what we're starting to see are some trends in the market. The market has really grown, It's as predictably. It's very top-heavy, as anyone would probably expect. At the very top, the biggest schools, the biggest programs, and the major household name athletes, they've been doing very well. They've been signing lucrative deals and some very creative ones. But most of the student athletes and most universities are not necessarily cashing in just yet. The deal size is still pretty small. And one of the things that's being talked about now is how do we make this market more efficient, right? Because people that were going to get drafted in the first couple rounds of the NFL or NBA draft, you know, they were going to make money eventually anyway. So it's great that they can make money now, but what about the people on the margins, the people who aren't necessarily going to be professional athletes? How can they make money? And universities and colleges are starting to create collectives to represent all their student athletes and to inform them and to sort of help them negotiate on a collective basis. And we're starting to see a raft of companies that are going to try to democratize the process as well Sort of like, have you heard of Cameo? Yeah, Cameo is allowing basically anyone with some type of audience or celebrity to give personalized messages to people and people could pay for it. But now here's right. the thing with Cameo. I mean, Cameo had a, it was definitely did well during the pandemic and it's kind of dropped off since then. And I, and I think it's one of those things where my thought here is that there's companies like Players Trunk, Open Doors, Booster Athletes. There's a bunch of them coming out it comes down to like, you have to make really good stuff that people are willing to pay for. Cause I think in the beginning you can be like, yeah, this athlete's going to do a personal message. 
at some point, I think that just like ends up being like, well, that's not good enough for me. Like, I want to see what's going on behind the scenes. I want to see them training. I want to see good content. I think that's like why people on who do really well on TikTok just do really well because they're putting out good content. And then you see like YouTubers as well. Like, there's a lot of athletes now that have their own YouTube channels in all sorts of sports. One of them I'll say is I follow him, uh, Patty the Batty, who's a UFC fighter from England. He has a YouTube channel and he just travels and eats and shows training and stuff. And he's like growing really fast and he's putting the work into it. And I think at the end of the day, I think one of the benefits of having these collectives do a lot of the work is that at least if you are not that, like you don't have that much charisma or you're not going out there creating stuff, you're going to get something in your pocket. But then there's going to be standouts. You're going to have your like your names that are going to be like, oh, there's great personalities. I've already seen that on TikTok. Bat like high school basketball players and the millions of followers. Yeah, Zion Williamson, when he was a freshman at Duke, he had a million Instagram followers, right? So like he was a platform in and of himself. He had all these 360 dunks and like was just a, a human highlight reel. He would not necessarily benefit as much from, you know, open doors or something like that because he's already a star, but someone else might. And I think just like it's not exactly the same, but it's like OnlyFans in a way. It's like you can create, you can control that customer relationship without an intermediary or middleman, right? Yes, there's a marketplace technically, but what it should do is enable people to have more customization and more interaction and maybe potentially more authenticity. And I think one of the founders is saying that there's 180 million college sports fans. Yeah, I, I saw that. I saw it was a guy who um, who founded Open Doors. And I think, again, it comes down to what are they buying, though? Like, it has to be something of value. And I think people could find that. I mean, let's assume that of 180 million college fans, not everyone is potentially paying for something. But Here's the thing of the big number, maybe there's like 10,000 people that are willing to pay several hundred dollars, right? And I think it comes down to like, especially if the stuff that's being provided by these athletes is like something you want to see. And I think a lot of the stuff, you know, it's either training videos or behind the scenes or what their lives are like. I think people like that stuff. I generally, especially with sports things, I love to see what their life is behind the scenes. If it makes the market more efficient, then it's probably a good thing. Right. Yeah. You know. Side story. Uh, years ago, I had uh, a friend of mine who was doing like he would do investor meetings and he would travel in an RV into like all these random states. And we went to no- I think we were in Nebraska and I went with them for like one of the nights. I met the founder of Open Doors. This was like maybe six, seven years ago. And he was like no pushing way. this thing. Yeah. And like Blake Lawrence, I think his name is. And and we, we exchanged emails and I, I was on his newsletter. I still see updates on it, but it seems like he's now well, that kind was of like coming before in. NIL was even possible. Yeah. It was totally way before. We're talking like years before that. And I think people were like, this, this was before the whole like creator economy came out in the COVID days. So like he, he actually had a pretty good vision for that. So I, I was glad to see his name pop up when we were doing research on this. Talk about being ahead of the curve, Mesh. Yeah, well, I didn't invest in the company and we haven't stayed in touch. Maybe I just couldn't see what he was seeing. Well, hey, you can't win them all. No, you can't. But but maybe you can get in the ground floor of this pickleball thing. I think that's where my head's at right now. I'm like, pickleball where it's at. We didn't get on the ground floor of Indian Premier League cricket. We certainly didn't get on the ground floor of the NFL or the NBA, but maybe, just maybe. Well, definitely, I think I would say ground floor is gone. Now we're in that, you know, it's getting some steam, but maybe this makes up for like some of the SPAC investments I invested in during pandemic that have all gone pretty much to zero. So if I can make that back, that'd be great. UFC missed out on that too. 
We got better call Paul. We got better call Paul. <laughs> but yeah, man, good good analysis. That was a good discussion. And guys, that's our show for this week. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Instagram at Better Call Paul the Podcast. And follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lakani. And we got our in-person episode October 5th for those that are in New York City and members of Sabani. Hit us up on Instagram uh, for details. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera and Marco Seiler Gonzalez. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.